Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. As Dr. Miller told you, I, have, I work in terms of the early church. I usually stop around 451, which is Council of Chalcedon. And principally my work has been in development of Trinitarian theology. And for a long time that focused on 4th century the, what's called the Arian Controversy and Council of Nicaea and then everything that built up between Council of Nicaea to Council of Constantinople in 381. And the creed that we recite in Mass, which is sometimes labeled as the Nicene Creed, is actually the creed of the Council of Constantinople 381. And it is that council <clears throat> which formalized the doctrine of the divinity, the full divinity of the Holy Spirit, though not as robustly as some people had hoped. So what I intend to do today is, because my approach to theology is historical, and this arrives, this interest in this historical theology arises, I think, out of a deep abiding love in, in, for telling stories about myself. So, so it was a sort of a natural to go from telling stories about my past to talking about somebody else's past. So that's, how I'm gonna, that's principally how I will work in terms of covering subject matter. And is there a clock in this room? Okay. Um, okay, hold the mic closer. Okay. Do you want to wave your hand when it's quarter till? Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> is that better? Yes. All right. I. In all of my classes, I've, I don't use a podium, I don't read, and usually sit, have a table in front, which I sit on. Uh, and that's as close as I get to a chair. So, um, Dr. Miller told you that I've been working on a book on the continuities between Jewish doctrines of the Holy Spirit and early Christian doctrines. And I would, this book would be published by now if I could come up with a nice Amazon-friendly title. Because publishers want to have some title so that when you punch in the Amazon search, your book is going to come up first. And somehow continuities in pneumatologies from 200 BC to 200 AD is not interesting enough or something. I mean, wouldn't you all punch that in? So 
I'm stuck trying to figure out a really good Amazon title before I can go anywhere with the book. But the book started because I was teaching a course on uh, the Apostolic Fathers and the Apologists, and we were reading Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew. And that book is written approximately 170, and in this dialogue in which you have Justin Christian trying to convince Trifo uh, the Jew, probably a rabbi, about the fact that Christ, is, that Jesus is the Messiah, and they go through this extensive exegetical debate in which Justin brings up all these texts from the Old Testament to say, look, Jesus fits the job description of a Messiah. And he just goes through over and over again. So they have to work very hard to find a common ground to talk about the Messiah. But while this is all going on, both of them are referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, Justin will refer to the Holy Spirit. He'll say, you know, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he'll quote something from what we call the Old Testament. And then Trifo, at some point, will say, well, as the Holy Spirit says, and he'll quote something from what we know as the Old Testament. And I had this epiphany moment in my graduate class, which was, why aren't they arguing about who the Holy Spirit is? And that was the moment when the book began. And I spent a very long time trying to figure out the answer to that question. And the answer boils down to this. There is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit in late Second Temple Judaism. Uh, it is not a very clear doctrine, and it undergoes change, but there is some reference to a, either the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, or um, simply in, for example, Isaiah, there's Holy Spirit. In Dead Sea Scrolls, there's reference to Holy Spirit. Um, uh, so there is, a, there is some, I almost, I, it's natural to say person, but that's jumping a little bit. There is some heavenly figure that is referred to as the Holy Spirit. And <clears throat> when you read early, when you read, for example, the New Testament or other early Christian texts, have any of you read any apostolic fathers or apologists? Okay. There will be a quiz later. Okay. So, um, when you read the early Christian literature, you notice that there are some things that come over from Judaism that are accepted. And there are some things that come over from Judaism 
that are major sources of contention. You know, there's the whole disagreement between Peter and Paul about uh, the necessity for circumcision. There's questions about, that Paul writes about in terms of dietary rules. So there's some process of discernment that has to go on within the early church as to how much of the older laws, Jewish laws, religious laws, apply to Christians. And this discernment did not happen instantly. It did not happen, I mean, Acts talks about the meeting between Paul and Peter, and then Peter's dream, and Peter has a dream about uh, the food at the picnic, so, and he, realized, he interprets this to mean that Paul's doing okay and they shouldn't be on his back. That, in fact, for those of you who know Greek, you'll know that the Greek actually says, Peter, don't be on Paul's back. Uh, you can check that later. Um, this is one of the advantages of working with the Greek text is you can make it up. So, uh, so there are other doctrines that remain consistent, the most significant of which is the fact that we call Jesus Christ. And I will be repeating what most of you already know when I say you know, Christ is not a last name. It is the Greek translation of the Jewish title Messiah. And, it, and as Christ, as Kyrios, it means the anointed one. And it comes to be used in the translation of Hebrew scriptures for um, God where the name of God would appear in Hebrew, they use the word Lord or Kyrios. So Lord and uh, Kyrios and uh, Christos come to be identified with one another and all of this originally Jewish language travels over and the, and the early Christians who were Jews apply it to Jesus to to articulate who they believe he is. You tend to use the language that you know in order to sort of edge into the territory that you're not sure about. So the most common Jewish use of spirit, Holy Spirit, is as a term for uh, that which causes inspiration. Um, when, when Moses is given the directions on building the ark and he, is, he tells Aaron to go and call all the craftsmen in and the spirit descends on them who are brought in the tent so that they'll receive knowledge about how to build the ark. And there are two people who weren't called, but who were standing outside the tent. You know, and, and Aaron's a little upset about this, and he says, these two guys are standing around. They got the spirit. What are we going to do with them? And Moses says, if they have it, they have it. Good. So there's that understanding, a sort of literal understanding of uh, inspiration in terms of 
increased knowledge or skill. There's also inspiration in terms of understanding that a scriptural text that has the apparent speaker is also being spoken by God. So you have the Psalms, who have the apparent speaker, most of them, as David, but they're also regarded as, as the Holy Spirit says. So the Holy Spirit proves to be the source of divine inspiration and revelation, largely, not exclusively, but largely in terms of when you read a past text, a past holy text, to understand what God is trying to say to you now. Uh, so that sense of, of spirit carries over into the New Testament. And when you read the New Testament, you'll often come across passages when they're using Old Testament passages to establish Christ's identity, like Psalm 110, uh, they'll say, as the Spirit said. So that carries over. There is also a sense that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that dwells in holy people, which may sound a little redundant, but this is the Spirit of God that dwells within the holy. And one example of this is prophets, where uh, Elijah, for example, has, this, has been given the gift of the Spirit. But we read, for, for example, in particular in uh, literature of late Second Temple Judaism called the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they will talk about the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you unless you become impure or angry or succumb to some evil emotion, and then you chase the Holy Spirit away. So there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is the presence of God within you, uh, a localized presence in a way, uh, a localized presence that joins you to other people who have that presence within them. Um, there's a great deal of scholarly debate about exactly what's going on at the Jordan when Christ is baptized and the dove comes down and we hear the voice. But, you know, Jesus is being baptized by John. Uh, we hear the voice, this is my beloved son, and then the bird comes down. And that right there is a, is a good example of where I got my title from. Because Jesus says something God says something, the bird doesn't say anything. God says in uh, Exodus 
three to Moses. You know, Moses wants to know, what's your name? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them in the Greek, ego eimi, I am sent you. So there's I. Jesus, several times in the Gospels, uh, in Luke, for example, at the, at the trial scene, at the beginning of the Passion, when there's the initial inquisition over who is he, there's this place where Jesus says, I am. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as saying that, using that kind of answer often. He will say, ego eimi, which is the same Greek as is given for God identifying himself in the bush. So you have God the Father, Yahweh, saying, I am, and you have Jesus Christ saying, I am. You never have the Spirit saying, I am. You never have the Spirit saying anything directly, first person. The only exception that I know of to that in the New Testament is in Romans when Paul talks about the Spirit expressing our groans and our sighs. Even that's not verbal in the sense of I am telling you or self-referential like I did that. That's the only place. Normally the Holy Spirit speaks, causes others to speak. Um, First Clement, which is a, a letter written by the person who's probably the third bishop of Rome to the Corinthians, the same community that Paul had written to and who seemed just to have not gotten the message and are still in trouble. Um, he writes them a letter and at the end of it he says, um, we can't claim to be like those who have gone before us, but we believe that we are writing to you in the Spirit. So the Spirit functions as, uh, an, as the authoritative speaker without ever being the speaker, okay? It's, um, I don't want to go so far as to say, you always knew Jim Henson was behind the Muffet, okay? But there is a question that's, that's real that you can kind of encounter with that, which is if you never have a direct statement of here I am or I am, then how do you recognize that somebody's there, okay? I mean, um, number of times in the Old Testament we'll have God calling out the name of someone and that person says, here I am, Lord. Holy Spirit doesn't, isn't recorded as speaking, 
holy either asking or answering. So this left a problem, and although my craft is to say, okay, how do we explain this problem in terms of late Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity, the concepts and the texts that are going on there? That's one way of doing it, but I think the other thing that needs to be said is um, it's difficult for us, and we don't have to sort of throw ourselves back into the first or second century of the Common Era. It is difficult for us to imagine what we call a person who doesn't seem to have this sort of central ego, okay? That for most of us, I mean, I know that in every one of you, there is this little voice inside of you, which is you talking to yourself and which is you, and which discovers what you like or what you want to do or what you don't want to do. We like to think that we decide, actually we discover. Okay, none of you ever made a decision about what your favorite flavor of ice cream was going to be, right? You didn't just sit there and reasonably go, oh, butter pecan is the good. You discovered what you liked. I had a friend whose favorite ice cream was uh, three scoops of bubble gum, one scoop of licorice, and three scoops of bubble gum. And whenever we would go into Baskin Robbins, this was when I was an undergraduate, this is what he would order. And so Friday night we'd go into town. Friday nights were very exciting for us. I mean, we would go to Baskin Robbins. And, <laughs> and, but we would come in, and after a while, the people who worked behind the desk, the counter got to recognize us, and when they saw my friend coming in, they'd start to run to the back of the store and try to get through that door into the back because no one wanted to be the person who had to put seven scoops of ice cream on one cone because they would always crunch, break the cone, and they'd have to start all over again. So. So I would ask Carl, Carl, how did you ever decide that you had to have bubble gum and licorice? And he would look at me like, how did he decide that in the daytime the sun shined, okay? So, so we don't usually, we like to think of ourselves as, discover, as deciding what we like, Often, we basically discover what we like, and, and then our little voice inside our head tells us what it is, okay? It walks up to that trembling high school student behind the counter and says, six scoops of licorice, you know, six scoops of bubble gum and one scoop of licorice, and the Holy Spirit told me to say that. So, so aside from the sort of shall we say, authorial uh, 
complications that are there in the text. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't say I, and the sort of historical reasons. There's also the simple fact that it's not, it's, it's not easy for us to imagine what that kind of existence, and call it a personal existence, would be like, okay? So I think that's part of why traditionally Christian pneumatologies, Christian theologies of the Holy Spirit have been weak. Now, I can tell you some specific reasons for why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was weak relative to, say, the doctrine of the Son. The doctrine of the, of the Father, God, Yahweh, that was from there from the get-go. And even in the creed, the creed starts off, we believe in one God, the Father. Okay, so there's that hangover from that worldview that's still there in the creed. We believe in one God, comma, the Father. Now, then we go on and we have assimilated the one God into the three persons, though so there's only that, you know, two sentences about the Holy Spirit. But originally, we start off with strong belief in Yahweh. She had no other gods before you. The notion of Christ being the Lord God and worthy of worship uh, is there when the Gospels are written, there already in Paul's letters. Uh, Christ is Lord. Um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not quite as clear. There is in, the, in early Christianity a, a very strong impulse to argue for the elevated messianic divine status of Jesus. That argument is an argument that Christians make to Jews. I mean, early Christians were primarily Jews. Early audience was primarily Jews. Um, Christians who were in a part of the community in, in Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple, they would go to the temple and they would preach. Outside of Jerusalem, Christians would go to synagogues or do public preaching to Jews. So there was an attempt, there was a need to explain Jesus's identity in terms of received Jewish categories, such as son of man, who is the figure in the vision of Daniel, or um, also in Ezekiel's vision, okay? Now, eventually son of man, takes on another meaning, but in the early sense, it has that apocalyptic reference. So, as, uh, as Christians go out to preach to Jews, then they 
are arguing for the divinity of Christ, as Jesus as the Messiah. And that ha that's what we see in Justin's dialogue with Trifo. And then Christians start to argue with non-Jews, the Gentiles, Roman citizens. This is in the group of literature usually known as the apologists, in which they've written letters to emperors saying, why are you killing us? The most famous one of these is a letter by Justin, who was uh, in Rome. He was from the Middle East, but he was in Rome, and he was a philosopher. In those days, if you were a philosopher, you got an outfit, okay? There was a, a philosopher's wardrobe, okay? They, I personally think they wore purple a lot, but um, so Justin was a philosopher who converted to Christianity and he was preaching, he was writing to um, the emperor to say, why are you killing us? If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, do you remember the good emperor who died at the beginning, Marcus Aurelius? And then his crazy, evil, wicked brother takes over? Okay, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Marcus Aurelius was the emperor that Justin was writing to. And Justin wrote saying, this is what we believe See, there's nothing wrong here. We're not atheists. We believe in a God. We just don't believe in all those gods you believe in. Justin's success at this is indicated briefly by his last name, which is <laughs> Martyr, okay? But those texts, that didn't succeed completely as uh, apologetics came into the church and reflected Christian belief back to Christians themselves and served a catechetical function. So Christians are trying to argue, and th this argument goes on until, well, it goes on at least until the time of Augustine. No longer quite as strongly as it was early on after, but it's still there, an argument about Jesus is really God. That argument is the defining argument for Christians, okay? I mean, we're called Christians. Um, we're not called uh, Yahwehists. We're not called uh, Pneumatists. We're called Christians. So there is something central about our identity that has to do with Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. That argument becomes central. It's, it's, it's the definition that has to be uh, 
preached and worked out and built up. The doctrine that there is the Holy Spirit is, with the Jews, not really a doctrine that has to be preached and worked up. As you see in dialogue with Trifo, they believe it. So Jew Christians don't have to stand up in synagogues and go, there's a Holy Spirit. They do have to stand up and say, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they don't have to stand up and say, there's a Holy Spirit that God sends. This is true for the Jews. When you get to the Romans, the Gentiles, the problem with preaching the Holy Spirit is the Romans actually have a notion of an inspiring spirit, but it's very naturalistic. Um, if you know about, say, the temple, the oracles of Delphi, where people would go and they would receive oracles about their lives. Socrates went and was told, know thyself. Um, the belief there was that the priests there were subjected to these vapors that rose up and inspired them. Okay, because the word for what's rising up, the vapors, is pneuma, as in pneumatic or pneumonia, and it's the same word as we use for spirit. So there had to be a careful distinction there. With the Jews, they already understood something heavenly about the Holy Spirit. With pagans, they had a non-divine agent that they understood to produce the same effects that Christians understood the Holy Spirit to produce. Is that reasonably clear? Christians believed the Holy Spirit caused prophecy. Pagans, at their various temples and oracles, believed that a spirit, a vapor, also is what caused an oracle. So when Christians preach the Holy Spirit as prophetic, they have to be careful to not get the Holy Spirit bumped down to that vapor that the oracles are caused by. So it's when you preach to the Gentiles, you can go, you have to worry about being reduced to this phenomenon that happens at shrines and oracles. Or some Gentiles, those who are Stoic in their philosophical bent, use spirit to mean the universe as a living thing. And in fact, this whole room is filled with spirit. And we, each one of us, is but a localized vibration in that spirit. 
okay? And everything about us is a vibration on a vibration. I am just a vibration in the spirit, and this tie is another vibration on a vibration, and the colors. So you have to worry about distinguishing what is a godly role of spirit in the Stoics, but which is an impersonal everywhere, okay? It's, it's, it's spirit there is like space, okay? It's living space. So Christians, when they talk about the Holy Spirit to pagans who are influenced by Stoicism, they have to be careful to distinguish their Holy Spirit from what the pagans are believing. Now, the other thing that's going on how do you describe the divinity, what the divinity in the person Jesus? Okay, what does it mean for there to be God in the man Jesus? We have a, a sense of, okay, what does it mean that he was a human? Well, we can go through a list of, human, of what human is. And we usually go, there, there's that body. If there's a human, he or she is going to be in a body. And if there isn't a body, that's a TV show. Okay? But how do you, how do you identify... How do you come up with a word for the divine that is in Jesus? You know, that pre-existed Jesus that came down and lived as Jesus and then remained with Jesus and went up. One word is, that's used is spirit. Okay? Since spirit is, you know, for example, in John 4, where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. Okay, so if Jesus has God in him, then Jesus has a spirit in him. So as time goes on and Christians are trying to argue that Jesus is God, then to other people like Jews, who have the same scriptures, they will say, look, here it is in scripture that God is called a spirit, and that spirit is in Jesus. That's the divinity that we mean. So, for example, in Psalm 33, 6, there's a reference to the word and the spirit creating. That psalm is used not to say that there's a word and a spirit, but to say the word and the spirit both refer to Jesus. Or if you take Luke 135, 36, now the spirit of God overshadowed Mary. I was taught most of us would go, 
the Spirit of God that's there is the Holy Spirit. Well, you would be hard-pressed to find that exegesis of the text for the first 200 years of the church. It was the pre-existent son who is identified with that spirit. Or, in one case, the father is identified with that spirit. And it is not until late second, late third century that we have that spirit is the Holy Spirit. This is what's called spirit Christology. In some classes you encounter spirit Christology, in which the divinity in Jesus is described as a spirit. What happened in the fourth century is that people realized that spirit Christology was stealing, as it were, the texts that needed to be brought forward to show that the Holy Spirit was divine. That that tradition of exegesis had diminished our appreciation for the Holy Spirit. There is, there is a bishop who's writing in 368 in what is now part of Romania, uh, Nikita of Romisiana. And he writes and he says, everybody says, this spirit here in this text is the Son. No, 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 no. This spirit is the Holy Spirit. And that's, you know, in 369, that's 21 years, 22 years before the Council in 381. So there's that turn to understand that the spirit texts are not just about Jesus. So I now have five minutes to give you the other 1,800 years of, and, and really, okay, I have to tell you, uh, in all honesty, that most of the important stuff is in the first 400, and the rest of it, you know, some people once said, um, philosophy is all a footnote to Plato, well, theology is all a reading of patristics, mostly bad readings. So, there's one other thing that I will quickly do this. When you talk about the second person, you'd call him the son. He's generated by the father. Or you call him the word, and the word comes forth from, the, from God as mind. He's the spoken word. The, this argument is used. We have this word inside of us, which is our mind reasoning, that voice that I said we all have deciding for licorice ice cream, okay? And we speak it, and that word which is there comes out. The same model, which was developed technically by the Stoics, is used by Christians to say, that is the origin of the second person. God's own logos is spoken by God and takes on a separate existence. So we have logos generation, we have father-son language, we have the word generate, we have three ways of describing 
how the Son comes to be. Father, Son, Logos, speaking, and this general category of generate. We don't have any of those for talking about where the Holy Spirit comes from. I mean, the closest thing you get to is God breathing. Or in uh, Psalm 104, there's a distinction made between the breath that comes out of God's mouth versus the breath that comes out of his nostrils. And some people will read that text and say, well, the breath that comes out of his mouth is Jesus. The breath that comes out of his nostrils, that's obviously the Holy Spirit. And then some people will say, no, the breath that comes out of his nostrils are the angels. Because if you read Genesis, you notice it never tells you where the angels get started from, okay? They're just there. What day did, Jesus, did God make the angels? Read Jubilees, it will tell you. So, there's a difficulty in coming up with a distinctive, productive model for the Holy Spirit. And product, production models define us. I mean, by, in your biology class, how do you know a duck is a duck? aside from the walking, quacking, and et cetera part. Its parents were a duck, okay? We're two ducks. Anything which is born from X is X. You don't have born language for the Holy Spirit. You don't have, um, you don't have the mental language for the Holy Spirit, you are left with a somewhat clumsy uh, physical image of blowing, breath. How do you apply that to God? The nearest thing that comes to be applied is from the Book of Wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon, in chapter seven, um, which is actually speaking about wisdom, and wisdom is called a spirit, and spirit emanates, which emanates is not a word that we use a lot anymore. Emanates is what heat does from a fire. So that emanates from God, from the glory of God. What will happen in the late fourth century is that Wisdom 725 will be used in one tradition, the Greek tradition, to talk about the origin of the Holy Spirit. And then in the Latin tradition, Christ will be understood as the Logos, as mind, and the Holy Spirit will be understood as having to do with the will, a good will, a holy will, that is to say, love. So, it takes until the late fourth, early fifth century to come up with some kind of model to describe the origin of the Holy Spirit. Even then, we're left with a word that 
we never use for anything else and we sort of invented, which is called spiration, which really just means there goes a spirit. I mean, I mean if you write it down, spiration, that means they're, you know, making a spirit, which is really just giving us a word for what we don't understand at all. But it's good to have those things. So spiration is used to describe the origins of the Holy Spirit. Now, last thing. The ambiguity about describing the origins of the Holy Spirit is so strong, and yet the need to resolve this is so important that two different, two very, two different answers that are only different in a, in a nuanced way is what separates Catholicism from orthodoxy, okay? In the Western creed, we say, you know, Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. It's called the filioque, which is just Latin for and the Son. This is not in the original creed of Constantinople as it was written. It just says from the Father. So, the group of churches that we recognize as the Orthodox Church stick with the original wording of, Cal of, of Constantinople. Whereas in the Western Church, as part of the task of dealing with Arianism and people who still didn't think of Jesus as fully God, this passage was added to show that Jesus, well, the Son is part of the origin of the Spirit. And later in Augustine and in Thomas, the two different relationships will be ways of distinguishing them within the Trinity. So, even now, after what? 1,500 years after, I mean, depending on which council you want to take when we excommunicated each other most recently, uh, 1,500 years, 1,000 years, 700 years, whatever, um, the nuance of what is the origin of the Holy Spirit precisely is still under debate and still has its effects. You know, are we correct to say the, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son? Or, I mean, is that meaningful and true? Or the Spirit who proceeds from the Father? Full stop. Um, I think that, I think that if you think about the Holy Spirit, uh, if you have a, a pneumatology, as we call it, of your own, if you have an experience of the Holy Spirit, you're not normally given to 
wondering, so where'd you come from? I mean, the identity is sort of self-evident in a way. But, but the question is still important. The question is important um, precisely because from the beginning Christianity has defined the identity of its person of worship besides God the Father strongly on the basis of origin. Okay, why do we worship Jesus? Because he is the Son of God. He's not just a super nice guy. Okay, he is the Son of God. Similarly, if we pray to the Holy Spirit, why? And implicitly, there is some notion of because the Holy Spirit comes from God and is God. But while, that, while there is that implicit understanding, there is still the confusion about how to articulate that clearly. And the consequences of that remain with us for 2,000 years. And that is why most people most theologians whose job is to come up with a good doctrine of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit and of the Trinity still give you pretty weak understandings and the way in which the Holy Spirit tends to be taught in Catholic catechetics is fairly weak. Um, it, he remains sort of, okay, yeah, we have to believe in that, but don't ask me too many questions. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I was 14 in CCD class, the minute the teacher said, don't ask me too many questions, that was like blood in the water. Okay, when, when he said, yes, that's true, but don't ask me too many questions, it was, all right, I'm gonna ask you a whole bunch of questions about this, chomp, 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 chomp. Do you ever, uh, do you ever see Jaws? Very beginning, she's in the water. That was my CCD teacher in ninth grade. Um, after I graduated from college, I taught CCD for a year, high school CCD, for a year as penance for what I did to that teacher when I was in ninth grade CCD. I don't believe that that year really put a dent in purgatory for me, but it was a nice thought. Um, and I know I have talked way too long so on that thought of me possibly getting a couple of years cut off of purgatory because 
I tried to make up for what I did to that teacher, which you should take as you go into your classes as a sort of principle, okay? If I'm, if I'm good to this teacher, might I get years off purgatory? Sure, okay? With that thought in mind, I will say, go eat now. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.